welcome to episode 303 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I'm glad we've been saving this episode oh, man. for 303. Let the puns begin. So we're now shifting and kind of pivoting a little bit, but of course, continuing on in our massive, epic discussion of all things Reformed theology. And we're going to talk about soteriology on this episode, which of course is the study of the doctrine concerning salvation. But we're going to talk about it in terms of starting with the call and so I'll just leave that for a second so that we can pause and bring back apparently this perennial favorite. Who knew I know. that the listeners were going to rebel and revolt against us when we took a temporary pause from affirmations and denials, but we got to bring it back. We do. We do. Do you want to start or should I? We just need to give the people what they want. Uh, it was, it, you can start. I can start. We just, I don't want to even just wait any longer because they're probably throwing their That's devices true. into bodies of water. Just it's saying, true. please get to it. So how about you start? <laughs> so I'm affirming our good friend, Reginald Scott Clark. Uh, I've yet Reggie. to confirm or deny. He He's never denied that his name is Reginald. So, uh, so until he, such a time that he does, I'm going to go with Reginald. Uh, Reginald Scott Clark uh, recently wrote an article on his website called She Is Not a Pastor. And I am uh, affirming this article and uh, there'll be a particular reason why I'm affirming this article that will become clear in my denial. But this is an article about a recent uh, event where Amy Bird, who has written several books, um, uh, generally centering around the role of women in the church, the role of women in theological uh, education and interaction, um, more of late critical of kind of the classic understanding of complementarianism, Wayne Grudem or John Piper. Um, she recently um, appeared on a Sunday and uh, she's done this before. And she, um, she in the past has kind of hedged or couched her, her situation um, by not calling it preaching. But this is the first time to my knowledge that she has actually called what she did on a Sunday morning uh, in the Lord's Day worship service, preaching. So this is a this is a kind of crossing the Rubicon moment. This is a this is a, actually I think is an intentional move on her part to kind of draw a line in the sand and then step across that line. And so to Scott's credit, he um, has been um, supportive of her in the past. He's written articles that have defend, defended certain parts of her program, uh, certain activities she's taken, uh, and so he. Um, I think responsibly so. He wrote an article uh, explaining that she has now crossed a line and that uh, that line should not have been crossed. So I, I know that this particular subject is tough, um, largely because there's a lot of heat around it. Miss um, Bird or Mrs. Bird, I suppose she's married, so I should call her Mrs. Bird. Uh, she, um, she was treated terribly by some people in the OPC. Um, I don't think that it is an exaggeration to say that she suffered spiritual abuse from um, men who were in ordained ministry in the OPC, um, and she has subsequently left the OPC. That's a whole different story. We might get into a little bit of that when I get to my denial. Um, but all of that to say that her theological program is still whack. And um, because she has suffered 
some spiritual abuse um, at the hands of those who are critical of her theology. Those of us who are also critical of her theology but are attempting to do so with integrity, sometimes the very fact that we are being critical um, gets called abusive or gets called, um, you know, it gets called something untoward. So Scott is demonstrating integrity and courage, I think, in a, in a real sense by publishing this article when he did. So kudos to him. So I'm just affirming him and I'm affirming this article. Uh, I think the, the R actually, just because I feel like I should, I think the R actually starts for, stands for Robert. Uh, it's not Reginald, but we're going to continue to call him Reginald because I, I think that's better. But um, yeah, so good on you, Scott. Um, you'll probably never hear this, although you might. Um, so good for you. Proud of the work you do. Recommend your resources a lot. Uh, I'm just a peon who lives in New Hampshire, so I'm sure it doesn't make all that much of a difference. But check it out. Uh, the article is available on the Heidel blog. If I had a cowbell, I would ring it. Uh, and it's available. It's <laughs> called She is Not a Pastor. And, and I think you should all read it, and I think you'll all be edified and benefit from it. I have to ask. I'm compelled to ask. Is the entire article just that title yeah just that would be it over and over again no it's it's i mean it's a good article it, it explains the theological underpinnings of why the reformed churches have universally up until very recently um held the position and still mostly universally have held the position that ordained ministry uh and particularly the ministry of the word and sacrament official ministry um is restricted to qualified men um, and qualified is an important part of that, but he also makes clear that the Bible does not uh, allow for women to be qualified. So no woman can, by definition, can be a pastor. So it's not about um, the skills a person has. Um, Amy is a, a competent public speaker. She's a, a good writer. Um, she has an adequate understanding, I think, of the scriptural text in a lot of cases, although I think more recently she's taken a kind of reader response approach to exegesis, which is dangerous. Um, not necessarily that she as a person is dangerous, but this methodology that she's adopting leads to really unfortunate and uh, unedifying consequences in your interpretation. Um, so he, he goes through, he talks about it, he's, he's focused on the scriptural support for uh, male-only headship and ordination. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a good article. I saved it to my pocket, um, reader and I favored it so I can pull it up later because it's, it'll be a good card in your deck in the future. If you need to kind of pull that out and say like, I already need the exegetical case for male only ordination. All right. Scott already did the work. I don't need to do it again. I just need to know where to find it. Agreed. I There's indexed one thing I it in Peatbot and Peatbot will be able to pull it up anytime. There you go. You, you got it at the ready. And I think that's important. Maybe as this increasingly becomes a conversation or just arises in the course of normal topical conversation among Christians or among people who are attending churches, evangelical or otherwise, and increasingly I see women pastors playing a more prominent role yes. in those congregations. This would be the kind of thing that'd be helpful to have. So you have context for what the Bible teaches. And I agree. I do think Reginald gives like a really fair and thorough treatment of this here. In many ways, he's just expounding on biblical data. Right. He's really just presenting it objectively as this yeah. is what the Bible communicates to us about this role without conflating it too much with cultural influence or some sense of egalitarianism. So it definitely is, I think, the kind of thing that you might want to keep literally in your back pocket. Yes. And really, you can't believe everything that the internet says. So until Reginald says to me that his name, like he says to me, his name is not Reginald. Yeah. I think it's fair. Since you're not on social him. media, you probably he he doesn't really have a venue to say to you that his exactly. name is Reginald. So. He can he can call me. He it's can, true. He can get my number. It's true. Yeah. If you, I would love to chat with Reginald, and I just think Reginald among the names that you might pick that 
could start with R. That is like, for me, a name of high regard, Reginald. That's like a, did you not think it fits though? Like his style? Oh yeah, for sure. If he said it's Reginald, I would be like, yeah, Yeah, that checks out. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. What about you? What are you affirming today? I'm going to a place where, you know, it's just, there's so much to listen to online. Chalk this up to hashtag what a time to be alive. And so I found this website, which I'm sure others have already, but I'm just going to throw it out there because I'm affirming a great way to find things that you want to listen to that you don't even know exist. So I'm affirming with podchaser.com. This is a place where you can literally just drop in a particular title, a name, a keyword, and you can find every podcast that maybe speaks to that theme or has just mentioned that particular thing in the course of their podcast. So for example, here's the ultimate test. You type in EFS, you type in eternal functional subordination, guess who comes up? Oh yeah. So you get our episodes on that particular topic. I just found this to be a really great way to get exposure to things that are out there that you wouldn't even know existed. So if you like cats, type in cats and you're going to get all the podcasts that either are about cats or have mentioned cats. Or if you like I don't know, llama farming, then that's something that you can just drop in here. It's really super awesome. So it's great because like, have you ever been a place where you're like, you're, you're studying a topic or a subject matter and you're like, I don't want to listen to like everything on this particular podcast. I just want to know who has mentioned this or who's actually talked about this. Maybe like some podcast has done another episode on EFS. I don't think there are any out there that have done it (laughs) or have done it like us. I was expecting more response from you. So, um, that it's just nice to be able to like drop into the stream of consciousness of a podcast by searching out a particular episode. So this for me has been the best website to allow that. Have you heard of this before or used it? I haven't, but I'm looking at the website now, which is why you got less of a reaction out of me for that uh, that statement there than you expected. Uh, it's pretty amazing. It's a it's a pretty cool concept. Um, I'd be interested to learn if they are just looking at titles and show notes or whether they have some sort of indexing to the actual audio itself. That's a great question. Um, because I think that would be the next kind of the next phase of this would be to actually index the uh, the transcripts. And there are a lot of easy ways to to index and transcribe um, audio these days. So this is sweet. I'm going to check this out next time that I'm looking for a topic on uh, for a, a podcast on something instead of just like. I don't know, fuzzy searching Apple, Apple right. podcast, which doesn't necessarily get you what you're looking for most of the time. So yeah, this is way better. Yeah. This is especially if you're That's looking for like after. a, an eccentric niche topic, like llama farming. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's just do that real quick. We really need to, right? I think we're I'm both doing it. I'm just saying <laughs> this is amazing podcasting people. Uh, I don't see anything specifically about llama farming, but there's a lot of stuff now about farming, oh, farming for a- dummies. There is a shocking amount of llama related like results here though. Interesting. So you and I are getting different results. What did you type in? Well, I'm getting well, I started with just llama. Ah. Uh, so that's that's where I went first. Okay. But it, it very interesting. Yeah, so this is pretty cool because I've been looking for something that does a little bit more indexing. And I love that when you do a search, it shows you both it's kind of source or groups of everything by podcasts or by episodes yeah. or by creators. So you can search for a creator. So that's, that's also pretty cool. So if you were to, let's say I just throw in, uh, the Lutheran in residence, Mr. Chad bird, then I come up with him as a creator. I come up with it. Apparently he was on the bar podcast. See, there you go. Yeah. I would have never even found that if I hadn't had something like this. Well, you and I to... have this secret theory. Maybe it's my theory that you just haven't slapped me out of yet, but I actually think that, that Chad is far more reform reformed than he realizes. 
and that's that's part of why so many reformed podcasts um trip over themselves to to have chat on their show. I mean, we had chat on our show, so there's nothing wrong with tripping over yourself. I literally disrupted our entire <laughs> vacation to get Chad and Eric on our show. So that right. is not a slam. I'm just saying I think the way that he does his biblical theology and his um not dependence, but indebtedness to Greg Beale uh, and through Greg Beale to Meredith Klein. He doesn't even know he's indebted to Meredith Klein. It's a funny story. When we met him a couple years ago at the beach, I asked him how familiar was he with, with Meredith Klein. And he said, who's, who's she? (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think the way he does his biblical theology and the the way that he utilizes typology and stuff, um, he is drawing on a lot more reform sources than he realizes. So it's, he ends up on a lot of reform podcasts because of that, but you wouldn't know that necessarily unless you search for Chad Bird in this podcast uh, app because that's going to show you all the episodes he's been on. There we go. You know I'm going to listen to that. This is also great like if you like a particular let's say artist or band or something and you want to see like where they've had interviews across all different kinds of media venues. This is just a great way. So I've really been enjoying this. It's actually just a fun way to just drop in and search for stuff and find things that are unknown to you. So yeah what's really interesting you can type in the name of a person and it'll pull up creators. So if you type in my name, it actually pulls up a small bio. I'm not even sure where that's coming from. Interesting. It's I'm going to have internet. to dig into this more when we're not recording a podcast because everybody's it's, like... It's the internet. Yeah. You can't stop it. It's amazing. Yeah, you can't stop it. All right. So what are you denying against then? Tell me where you want to get negative. So this isn't going to surprise anybody, but I'm denying against Amy Bird today. <laughs> um, so as I, as I said, I commended Scott for um, having the courage and the integrity to address uh person that he has defended in the past and no longer finds to be defensible. And I find myself to be in that same uh, scenario. We haven't talked about uh, Amy's theology all that much on this show, but there have been times where it's come up. Um, and by and large, we've attempted, I've attempted to be a friendly critic. Um, I haven't always been met with a friendly response from her, uh, which has become less and less friendly over time. Um, but at, at the same time, um, when you know, at one point she was on Mortification of Spin. She was producing podcasts with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Um, and there was some criticism at the time and people were saying this is a trajectory that's going to lead to her in a pulpit someday. And I was saying, that's ridiculous. You guys are crazy. Um, well, I was wrong. So I I think her theological trajectory, um, and I, it's funny, she makes a big deal out of what people talk about with trajectories, but it it's clearly happening. She set herself on a certain course with certain exegetical um maneuvers and exegetical strategies that have put her on a course where now she seems to feel comfortable standing in a pulpit and saying she's preaching and delivering the word of God to a congregation on the Lord's day. Um, so I think it's important for those of us who have, have spoken out in favor of some of her works in the past. Um, that's not to say all of her works are bad. Um, some of her earlier works are strong reformed theological entries into the, you know, into the encyclopedia of theological writing. Um, but particularly once you get to, um, why can't we be friends? And then especially once you get to recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood, um, she begins to take on an exegetical approach where she is adopting more egalitarian resources and egalitarian arguments in favor of women involved in theological education and theological activity. Um, my primary criticism at the time when recovering uh, recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood came out um, was that she didn't have any logical features in her argument that stopped her argument from progressing from this kind of um, 
complementarianism that allows for women to teach in non-formal, non-ordained roles, which is where I would find myself and where Scott finds himself. Um, there was no logical break in her argument that prevented her from adopting these egalitarian arguments full scale, which lead to women uh, ordained and preaching from the pulpit. And um, she she slid right down that slippery slope uh, pretty much full speed. Um, things definitely accelerated um, after the OPC trial and after things went um, sideways in every possible direction at that time. So I, I don't want to belabor the point. Um, I think those criticisms of her theology that are out there are adequate. I think that they're more competent in terms of presentation than I'm able to give uh, in this short period or that I've been able to give in writing in the past. But I think it's important, especially for those of us who have been supporters in one way or another, have been um, commending her writing at some point or another, and especially those who have defended elements of her argument uh, in one form or another, it's important for us to stand up and say she has now departed from a, a boundary that we we can't cross. So whether she is making a full-throated argument that women should be given equal access to the pulpit um, or not, which is, as far as I can tell, is not actually the argument she's making. She seems to be making an argument that's something along the lines of, um, I would have left it to the men, but the men didn't get the job done. And so God has called me to now step in and fill in a gap that they've created. She published an article on her own blog that essentially makes that argument. She actually says in, in so many words that she would have been happy to leave it to the men, but the men didn't do it. So she kind of fashions herself a little bit like, um, like some of the egalitarians fashion Deborah, where they try to say, um, yeah, ideally God would have used a man, but the, you know Barak was a coward and he wouldn't stand up and do the right thing, and so God called Deborah to fill in that gap, which isn't what the Bible teaches. Um, we we talked about that on our complementarian episode, um, but she seems to be fashioning herself, at least in this last article, on sort of those lines, and that's just a, a really dangerous place to be when you when you are making some sort of argument that somehow God has suspended His standard laws for your case. Um, that makes me real uncomfortable. So I'm just denying her theological program. I'm denying her behavior and her activity. Um, I think she probably is still a sister in Christ. I can't judge hearts. Um, I think she trusts the Lord and she loves him and wants to serve him. And I just think she's way off base. Um, I don't think she's a heretic. She's not a, she's not a false teacher, um, even though she's teaching false things. Um, but she needs to be opposed. She's teaching things that are false and errant and are leading people to wrong conclusions. As a point of specificity, so far on this episode, we've given the double bird. So there's Chad Bird yes. and Amy Bird. Not related. No. Not spelled the same, just True. in case anybody's curious about True that. True story. And I agree. I think what's helpful in what you said in particular was, let's not, with all things, throw out the baby with the bathwater. We Both you and I have read a lot of Amy's writing, and there's a lot in it. There is many points in it, like you said, that are helpful and useful and comport with orthodox theology. And there's some that are not. And so it's okay, I think, to stand up and to call out those points that are not. And to also, on the other side, hopefully have a dialogue with somebody who realizes that as you do that, that you shouldn't be judged by the abuse of something either. And that to bring critique upon those points that are not orthodox is okay. That's not abuse in the same way. We can still recognize, like you said, that she has been through some really significant and profound hurt, disappointment, and abuse. And by calling to account for the things which she's writing, what she's doing is not to extend that abuse, of course. It is in True. many ways to do what she's asked for, which is to make everything come under the scriptures and the authority of God's word. Yeah. Well, I think we've de devoted enough of this episode that is not about that topic to that topic. So, Jesse, take <laughs> us home out of this segment here. What are you denying? 
Uh, here's a quick denial. So I'm not really sure exactly how to classify this, but I guess uh, it might be like the double denial, which ends up with a weird affirmation. And maybe that's what it is. So like denying against denying the fact that the world is groaning and I just see that everywhere. And it's like impossible not to, I think, come to that conclusion in big and small ways. Maybe this is a denial of that post mill. So let me, let me just couch it that way. So let me give a couple of verses from Romans 8. So this is Romans 8, 19. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And I was just thinking about this because... This is kind of, in some ways, a throwback. It's not exactly the popcorn affirmation, but it's very similar. And once again, in the area in which I live, we've got these spotted lanternflies, and they're just popping up everywhere. They're taking over. And I was thinking, you know, in it, the state is basically like, if you see, like, shoot on sight, like kill them, <laughs> like they're unapologetically, like take off a shoe, destroy them. And they're just everywhere. And they grow up so fast. They start small. And then in yeah. two days, they're they're large and they're trying to carry you away. And, you know, in their own right, they're very beautiful. And I was just thinking that this is, again, the perversion that sins brings into the world. It is the right thing at the wrong time or the right thing in the wrong place is the wrong thing. And so it's just unfortunate that here are these beautiful insects that God has created, but because they've made their way into a place where they ought not to be and they're destructive in their own right in that place where they ought not to be, it becomes this groaning that you can sense like even the trees around here are like, please get rid of these bugs. These, yeah. these destroy us. Like there is a literal groaning among creation to set things right where there'd be appropriate boundaries. And of course, we know that our God is not a God of chaos. And so the fact that there is this dispersion of insects and bacteria and viruses all over the place in places they ought not to be and in areas they ought not to exist, that this is itself creation groaning. So maybe it's, again, a denial against that post mill. Uh, but also, I just see those little bugs and I think, man, you're beautiful, but I got to kill you. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> man, there's a place, though, for you to be safe somewhere where you're you're existing in with synergy and in consummate harmony yeah. with the world God created you to be. And what a glorious thing it will be when we enter that world. We can't conceive of that world, right? Yeah. Like, just the fact that these these small things happen on, like, the insect level, yeah. uh, which turn into big things, actually, uh, is just a reminder that we do have a home. We do have this, this new world, the world that God is going to create, the new heavens and the new earth, will be a place where nobody will have to kill a lantern fly and we'll just be able to appreciate its yeah. beauty no matter where it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's the truth. It's funny. I've I've noticed um, over the last, I don't know, I've lived in this area for about, I don't know, about eight years now. And I've noticed um, more and more trees coming down, just kind of unexplainedly. Mm -hmm. There's just for whatever reason. And and what's strange about it, and this freaks me, just freaks me out. When you see a tree that's come down, it actually looks like there's a part of the tree where the middle has collapsed. Like right. it's been eaten. It's been like eaten from the inside out and like dug away at from inside until all of a sudden that trunk, which looks good, looks normal and healthy from the outside. It just can't support the weight of the, the tree anymore. And it just kind of buckles over. And I think that's a good metaphor for like what creation is, has had done to it. Right. Sin has kind of hollowed out a lot of these things. Um, it's hollowed out, especially um, humans and our our spiritual estate. And some of this will come up during the, the, the um, episode today. It's hollowed us out. 
and it it's hollowed out creation itself where now all of a sudden creation is groaning because it's it's suffering under this corruption and just like the spot on lantern fly on the outside sometimes it looks really beautiful but it's it's sort of like rotten through all the way through like these these little bugs are beautiful but if you don't get them under control and you don't deal with them all of a sudden stuff is going sideways and it's crazy so yeah I, we don't we don't have I don't think we have anything specifically like an invasive species like that up here, um, but yeah, they're, I hear they're pretty nasty that they can cause them a lot of damage. They can. We talked about before, and they could yeah. be coming for you. But isn't that the wild thing? Is that they were made to? So this is like the thing where people talk about, say, tongue in cheek about certain type of bug or an insect yeah. that's annoying as if like, well, that's got to be part of the fall. And yet we know that like God created all things right. and when he created all things, they were good. So there's like a, a profound purpose that is innate to their very being that represents the goodness of God right. writ large and full stop. So it just is amazing to think that they ought to be here, but just not here. Does that make sense? Like yeah. not physically in this place, but they ought to be appreciated and they're part of an ecosystem that was meant to function with like, clear symmetry and symbiotic nature, but it's just not in South Central Pennsylvania. Yeah. But uh you guys showed up here and now now we gotta destroy you. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. Sucks that's to a, be a spotted a... lantern fly in Pennsylvania. It's <laughs> a great transition. Mm-hmm. So so in terms of like, you know, saving and not saving, in this case the lantern flies in this part of the world, you know, well as we tease a little bit at the beginning, this idea of soteriology, and there's so many directions that we could go with this. But on the face, of course, we're talking about the fact that soteriology, the study of the doctrine concerning salvation, it's it's embracing God's purpose to save the person and the work of the Redeemer and the application of that redemption by the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives and the hearts of men. And yet, probably the best place to start is how the whole thing starts. Yeah. And of course, like when you want to get in touch with somebody, when you want to get somebody's attention, most of the time, the thing that you're doing is calling out to them, even if that's by text message, you're literally trying to get their attention. So probably a good place to start is this idea of the call. And we could split that. We could kind of bifurcate it into two different means. And I believe we wanted to start talking about what's called the outward, or I prefer the word like external call and where that sits itself in this whole study of soteriology. Yeah. And this is, I think is an area that most people don't really, um, they don't associate with soteriology, even though it's it's deeply involved with how our salvation works. Most of the time, I think what we're gonna what we're going to end up talking about um, today, at least, ends up sort of falling either in bibliology, where you talk about the nature of the Word of God, or right. in uh, sort of practical theology and sort of homiletics of like how do we construct a sermon? What's the purpose of a sermon? And and in reality, it fi- fits just fine in those places. We've talked about this before that when you're trying to arrange a systematic treatment of all the doctrines of theology, there are different choices you have to make. But one thing that we've been trying to do during this sort of mega series that we're doing is follow the confessional logic of the Westminster Confession. And so I want to read um, chapter 10 here, uh, section one. It says, all those whom God hath predestined unto life and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about what, what some of that call, particularly the inward call, um, consists of. But it's that phrase that he effectually calls by his word and his spirit. That's That concept is where in Reformed theology, we get this concept of, a, of an external call and an internal call. And so although we would acknowledge that some people 
may be called internally only. Um, we, I, I shouldn't say we, I don't deny the possibility of the things that we hear coming out of the Muslim world. Although I think most of the stories and the accounts of people having dreams that lead them to the gospel are a little bit overblown um, and a little bit exaggerated and not, not usually verifiable. Um, I don't preclude the possibility of God communicating immediately to somebody. However, we're talking about the ordinary way that things work. And ordinarily, there's an external call, which comes by the preaching of the word. And we'll get into what specifically we're talking about when we say that. And then that external call is matched by what we're talking, what we'll talk about next week is the internal call. And those two things combined, it's like Captain Planet, right? Our powers combined. Those two things line up to cause what we call kind of collaboratively or collectively the effectual call where God calls the sinner by his word and his spirit and brings about their salvation by, by calling them in an effectual way that actually accomplishes and brings them into salvation. And so we, we start out with understanding what is the role of the preached word of God in the beginning of this whole chain of, of events that we're going to talk about is soteriology. How does preaching and maybe even a, another question to ask is, what kind of preaching are we even talking about when we talk about preaching in this context? How does preaching fit into this sequence of events that we call the ordal salutis, right? We know it's got to be at the beginning, but what role does it play in, and kind of what are the actors? How does that function? So I think that's a good place for us to start as we kind of jump off. And I think the main strength is we don't, I don't see this part of it talked about in soteriology all that often, because I right. think it it's associated with other parts of the theological system and, and it has different emphases. And I think sometimes have di- people have different priorities, but our reformed, you know, luminaries in the, the 15th, 16th century, almost all of the confessions start off the, the chain of salvation here, the order of salvation with a conversation that involves the preaching of the word and the external call of the gospel that sort of initiates and launches this whole thing. So we should be slow to just depart from that, even though we may have good reason to treat this in one place or another, we should recognize that it fits here for a particular reason. If there's one thing that we know about the demographics of the some of the brothers and sisters that listen to this podcast, it's that they're going to have to Google Captain Planet. It's true. To fully understand exactly what you just said, but they should because it's excellent and you're welcome. That came free of charge without affirmation. But you're, of course, exactly right. You know, we maybe overhype or overplay. I don't think so, but we say this thing a lot. If you get this thing right, you'll get everything yeah. else, right? We yeah. say that almost every time we talk about theological concept. And you can chalk this up to some of the same. So what's funny is it strikes me as you read that from the confessions and as I look at some of the other ones, what you find in there, there's almost like this common knowledge, this sense, like this underpinning, this common understanding that that's just the way it is. You're not going to find them like explicitly identifying external, internal, but you see it embedded implicitly everywhere, which says to me that this was just the way in which they understood the world because it's the way that they understood the Bible correctly talk about soteriology. So there is a distinction. There ought to be a distinction between this external and external. They're both proceeding from God. They occur by means of his word, like the full counsel of God. They pertain to the same matters and they're presented, you know, to various parties. Both calls are addressed, of course, to like human beings who are by nature the same, but, but they are distinguishable. And The one, I would say like one of the functions externally is this idea of like the word is proclaiming something to us by way of data and the Holy Spirit does join himself in his common operation, resulting in a common illumination and a historical faith. 
that's what we get by way of just saying that the Bible can be made available to many people in the Holy Spirit. It is going out and never returning void. It is giving a proclamation of truth, right? The Bible tells us this is the truth about the world and about the history of the world. But, and just to like anticipate a bit, just so to provide some contradistinction, you know, the other, like the internal call penetrates the very heart of man. It powerfully illuminates with this kind of wondrous light. It reveals spiritual mysteries to the man in their essential form, and it powerfully inclines the will to embrace those mysteries in Christ and to have obedience in faith. So this idea is very helpful and I think distinctive because it helps us to perceive and understand from where and from whom does this idea of saving faith originate, but also that it helps us to understand then why is it, because it's just a practical question, isn't it? Why is it that on the Lord's Day morning, any number of people could hear the same sermon, and by sermon I mean like a, a proclamation of the gospel, a retelling to us of what it means and how we ought to be saved. How is it that people can hear the same thing, but respond so differently. It actually starts with understanding that there is an external call. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, kind of taking a step, a step back in time from the Westminster to an earlier confession actually helps us to understand why it is that this is so fundamental. And I think it's because part of it is because when we think about the word of God, most of us, our heads go to like the scripture itself we might go to Jesus as the word, right? We might, those are like the two concepts. We have the the uh, incarnate word and we have the inscripturated word. And those, those concepts aren't wrong for us to draw our attention to, but there's also the proclaimed word or the preached word. And so if you go back to the second Helvetic confession, which is a Swiss confession, uh, confession that's earlier than the Westminster, it says here uh, in article or chapter one, it says the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful and that neither any other word of God is to be invented nor is to be expected from heaven. And that now the word itself, which is preached, it's to be regarded, not the minister that preaches. For even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless, the word of God remains still true and good. And so what this is saying and highlighting is that I think because of um, a lot of historical factors having to do with revivalism and and crusade, not like the Middle Age crusades, but like Billy Graham crusades, um, Finneyism, that kind of stuff, we think of um, the word of God almost exclusively as the scriptures themselves. And so in our day and age, our relationship with the scripture has primarily come to us through the concepts of things like quiet times and devotional literature and and now you know now it's more podcasts and and lecture series that we find online and we don't often conceptualize the word of god as that which is coming out of the minister's mouth on sunday morning and we've talked at length in other episodes about the importance of preaching and and how you know that phenomena we all have after about 20 minutes of the sermon of starting to check our watches and feeling like, okay, the sermon's got to be getting done soon. That's a sinful impulse that we need to, we need to crucify that and we need to get it under control. But the the reason this is important in this particular context is that maybe you're going to disagree with me, but I really doubt you are. We think of the preaching of the gospel and we think most of us think predominantly of evangelism 
like that guy who goes out in the park and does street evangelism or the missionary who is is sharing the gospel on street corners with people that he sees. We don't think of the preaching of the the gospel, and I'm saying gospel as opposed to saying the word because I think there's a different connotation that we have in our heads about those two words. We don't necessarily think of the proclamation of the gospel and the origin of salvation in preaching as what happens on the Lord's day. But if we're going to be faithful to what our Reformed confessions teach and and affirm that we believe those things are what the Bible teaches, they're distilled versions of that, we have to recognize that this preaching of the word that the Spirit uses as the effectual origin of salvation, right? The effectual call is this outward call and the inward call kind of combined to generate or to create this effectual calling. That outward call is coming through the Lord's Day service. That is not to say God does not use Bible preaching and gospel preaching that are in other places to at times bring someone to salvation or at times to bring them into the church to hear gospel preaching on the Lord's Day. But theologically, when we think about this from a Reformed perspective, that happens in the Lord's Day service as a predominant mode, as the common operation, the common way that God operates in his church and in his people is to call people to salvation from within the church. So we think of evangelism, we think of like me sitting down with someone at a coffee shop and sharing the gospel with them, and I give them like a little track, or I, I say, like, why don't you go home and read the gospel of John and tell me what you think? We think of that as the primary mode of evangelism, because that's the evangelical way that we've kind of come up in, most of us. But the Reformed way of thinking about this is that we make disciples by bringing them into the church where they receive teaching and and upon confession of faith, baptism, and then further instruction. That's how you make disciples. You don't make disciples by like standing on a street corner or preaching the gospel. I mean, that's not a bad thing to do, but the idea right. is, and if you listen to some of the really good street preachers, you think like Todd, Todd Priel or Todd Friel on Wretched Radio, although I've got all sorts of concerns about some of his theology with Lordship Salvation stuff, he's a good street evangelist. He very rarely asks someone for a commitment when he's talking to them on the street. What he does is he encourages them to think about it. And then he, he a lot of times tells them, if you need to know more, find, your, find yourself a good church on Sunday morning and go, t- go there and you'll hear the preaching there. That's where I think the Reformed tradition, maybe not uniquely, but the modern iterations of Reformed theology is still strong, is that there's this emphasis on the Lord's Day preaching as the effect, effectual means of salvation rather than... These other these other venues or other vectors where the the word gets preached or the gospel gets preached, and it comes down to like what do we think preaching is? Well, that goes back to what we talked about when we talked about Christ as the prophet. Preaching the the ordained preaching ministry of word and sacrament is the Lord Jesus Christ operating through his ordained ministers, through his appointed agents as a prophetic voice to make known the will of God for the salvation of his people. So it, it, all of this ties together in really organic ways, and, and it's no, it's no uh, surprise that this is the structure that we find in the confessions here. I agree with that. I mean, I want to, I would qualify it a little bit in the sense that I think part of the reason why you have to say everything you just said is that we've just compromised this concept or this term of evangelism. And instead we've turned it into something where it's, it's salesmanship. Mm -hmm. It's somehow trying to find, identify and resonate with people to draw them in. And oftentimes we recognize that the intimacy that occurs on the Lord's day in worship is not that exact thing that draws people in all the time. And that gets into what we'll talk about in the next episode. With that said, I agree with the fact that 
I, what we need anytime. So the gospel is being preached when we're being told the truth about the way the world is and what Jesus Christ has done to save this world. So that is normatively like your tier point ordinarily what should be happening on the Lord's day. If it's not, what I fear is the reason why people are saying that the Lord's day is not the principal means by which that happens is because their Lord's day is jacked up. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Oh yeah, for sure. And so like, as a result of that, they're judging they're misjudging what evangelism is because they don't see it happening on the Lord's day. It's not this, this lovely introduction or recapitulation of what it means to be saved every time the pastor gets up in the pulpit yeah. and proclaims this word of God. And so because that's been cheapened, then we associate it with, well, again, evangelism has to happen in relationship, has to happen over a cup of coffee. It can happen in those places, and it often does, but it doesn't mean that that negates the ordinary nature of it happening on the Lord's Day. Yeah. By way of example, recently, last week, two weeks ago, uh, my wife and I attended a funeral for uh, a beloved elderly member of our church who had died. And we just so happened that we, uh, my wife and I have a friend who was related to this person who is not a believer. And we've been witnessing to her and just sharing the gospel in these kind of general ways, both hopefully by the way in which we speak, but also at times by uh, she's come to our church. All that to say, I, I was amazed the pastor who gave the funeral, because this woman who died was a great believer, gave, you know, like this is also rare sometimes, I, I, I'm guessing you would agree, is to hear a, a funeral sermon that is a true sermon. Yeah. Uh, that isn't just platitudes or sentimentality or emotionalism, but really just gives like a rocking description of the gospel. And I remember thinking as we were with her listening to this together, that I was like, yes, this is like, and it was one of those few, few funerals I left, even after the graveside service, where there was this, I want to say this in a way that um, communicates that, of course, death is still something that we grieve. It was a lovely mix of the bitterness of death and leaving with this hope and massive encouragement. How I left feeling was that this is a woman that was greatly loved. And yet, just like somebody whom you love that moves away to another part of the town or another part of the world in which you can't see them regularly, you know that that movement was the best for them right. and that they're enjoying everything that life has to offer. That's how we all left feeling. And that Jesus Christ did this, that he gives us that great hope. It happened there. You know, like that, that is a proclamation of the gospel that is real. That is the kind of evangelism. That is what was given that day was a true and firm and fully orbed external call. And yet, to your point, God has given us a rhythm that is one day in seven where that call ought to go out in a clarion fashion in the church. So this idea that like evangelism doesn't happen in the church or not that way, like yeah. we need programs for evangelism, but like the Lord's day is like preaching. Yeah. I want to say, Oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> I've, I've totally me messed up the distinction of those two things or created a distinction or a wall that doesn't exist. Yeah. And I think, I think um, to kind of follow that string a little bit and, and pull on it a little bit, I think you're right. If, if you are leaving your church and if your church feels like, evangelism can't happen on the Lord's day, or we have to, we have to do something outside of the Lord's Different. day for evangelism. Yeah. It is because your Lord's day service is jacked up. And, and that all goes back to, it goes back to a lot of what we've identified, you know, in the last 300 episodes of problems with modern evangelicalism is, you know, the Lord's day service goes from being a place where Christians come together to be 
equipped and edified to have the gospel preached, to be convicted of their sins and to be called unto sanctification, right? Hebrews 10, 25, let, let us consider how to stir one another up to good works. Let's not neglect to meet together. All of this is ha- supposed to be happening in the Lord's day. What a lot of churches following kind of Billy Graham era, outsourcing certain parts of the church to parachurch ministries. What has happened is the Lord's Day service now becomes like a pep rally for all of the work that we're going, the church is going to do during the week, right? You hear like, well, on a Sunday we gather to get our marching orders, but the real worship happens like throughout the week. Or you hear like, well, Sunday is good, but like we really worship uh, we really worship Jesus uh, in our small group. Like that's where real community is. That's where like the real ministry happens. And I think that is exactly what causes this dynamic is that a lot of people, if you were to say, well, if you've got an unsaved friend and you want him to hear the gospel and you want the Holy Spirit to use the word of God to convict them of their sins, bring them to your church. People almost kind of laugh at that. Like, well, they're not going to, they're not going to do that. And if they do, like, they're not going to, they're not going to get converted by what my pastor preaches about on Sunday. Right? right, like what's what's ten healthy steps to a good sex life gonna do for my friend who doesn't know the gospel? Like that's my job. Well, that's because the sermon is jacked up. That's because that's not what a sermon is about. And it's it's interesting because I one of the things one of the passages people go to for this concept is in Romans chapter ten, and they a lot of times what happens with proof texts. This happens with younger, younger in terms of like new to the reformed tradition is people get so excited about like the proof text in a past in like the confessions. And the problem with that is that proof text, they have to, you have to understand that's like an exegetical like bookmark. It's not meant to be the entire support for the entire doctrine. So a lot of times like the confessions or the catechisms will quote one verse. And what they really mean to do is like get you in the right area and have you point you there for study purposes. And so Romans 10, um, 10, Kind of starting in verse 14 is where most people go. So it says, how then will they call on him in whom they've believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without some preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I actually see it. Where even like that section about like how beautiful is it or I, oh, Isaiah said this, like that actually gets cut out and there's like a comment. It just jumps straight to verse 17. What I think is really interesting and I think would be something really good for us to talk about a little bit with, with the time we have left, which is not a lot. But this whole chapter is about this concept and it starts with the law gospel distinction. That's what this chapter starts with, starting in verse, we'll start in verse five. For Moses writes about righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does not does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it goes on to talk about this. And so the the preaching of the law and the gospel on the Lord's day by the ordained minister who is the proclaimer of God's word, the prophetic agent of God's revelation of his will for salvation for his people, is the proclamation of the law and the gospel. And so when we get these sermons that are stepping outside of that, 
and they're they're on totally different subjects. They they don't have anything to do with that. That is why we feel like the church is not the place where we bring people to hear about salvation. But what a what a kind of crazy nonsense statement is that? The church is where salvation occurs. The church there is no salvation outside of the church, right? That's not some crazy Roman Catholic thought. That's John Calvin quoting Augustine, right? Salvation quoting Novation. Salvation occurs within the church, within the preaching of the word on the Lord's day. And it's because churches have strayed away from the understanding of preaching the law and the gospel day in, day out, every Sunday, consistently, all the time, and have gone into these other sort of like flights of fancies of like 10 steps to a healthier marriage or like five steps to get your finances in order, how to be a good dad, how to be a good mom, how to be a good, how to do this, how to do that. Like these self-help sermons that don't preach the law and the gospel. That's where I think we have developed this impulse that like, well, gospel preaching, like salvation, evangelism preaching, that happens, that happens like at the coffee shop or like in my, at my workplace or on the corner, that doesn't happen on the Lord's day. But if we look at the way the Bible conceptualizes the way that the preached word of God functions within salvation, it's the proclamation of the law and the gospel. I would say predominantly, although maybe not exclusively, but predominantly on the Lord's day. That's where we get the gospel. That's where we get the law. And if you're going into your church on Sunday and you you walk away from that, I, I tell this story and I don't say this to be too critical because I know every church has sermons that just, they, they fall short and looking at one sermon and trying to get an understanding of the entire preaching ministry of a church is foolhardy. But I went home, um, a couple years ago and I went to my, my home church and I came to faith in this church. So it's not like this church never preached the gospel. Obviously they did. God used this church to bring me to faith, but I went to the sermon and I remember sitting there and I was thinking about my mom who, who at the time I wasn't sure about her salvation. I, you know, I, I guess I'm still not hundred percent sure, but at the time I was really wondering what her status was. And I walked away from there thinking if my mom came to this sermon and she went up to me afterwards and said, what must I do to be saved? Tell me what I must do to be saved from that sermon. I would say, I have no idea. There's no content in this sermon that tells you what to, what to do to be saved. There's a lot of content in that sermon that taught you how to avoid human trafficking and what to do about it and how to make a difference. But there was nothing about what to do to be saved. And that is a major problem. And I think that's what drives a lot of people to sort of this impulse of like evangelism, gospel preaching. The role of preaching in salvation is not the Lord's Day. It's other kinds of preaching that is where salvation salvation happens. That's where it starts. Well, of course, it's not just a problem. It's an emergency, isn't it? The fact yeah. that people are perishing, the Bible reminds us of this very fact. It's not hyperbolic to say that there are eternal consequences to the way in which our pastors undertake the proclamation of the gospel or the lack of that kind of proclamation to instead either put people in the pews or make it try to make the Bible more relevant or resonant. So let me try a strange example that in some ways is going to be an oversimplification. It may be like too secular, but here's what I'm thinking is we understand this concept already. We really don't have a problem with it. It's just that we don't apply it when it comes to the church. So for example, the pastor, and this is my oversimplification, is really this paid expert who is to, by God's 
appointment guide us into matters of what it means to live in communion with God and with others according to the scriptures. He is an expert in this way. That's the oversimplification. In some ways, and here again is the oversimplification, it's no different than you go to the doctor's office because the doctor is the one who is the expert in delivering to you the reality about your body and your health. So when he says to you, you have an ear infection, or you have a cold, or you have cancer. That is the law. That is the truth about the reality of the situation in which you find yourself. And the gospel is the remedial effort that he will bring to bear as a complement to that description of the way in which you actually are. And we trust it to him. We go to the doctor's office, not to the street corner. We don't meet him in a van down by the river, hopefully. We go to the place that has been appointed for us to hear the truth about the way things really are. And the church is no different. And so like we need this pastor who is that expert, who ought to be, who is, who should be, is the appointed one, to deliver us the truth about the way things really are, which is the law, and then to give us the remedial effort, the healing that comes through the Messiahship and the sacrifice and the saviorship of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our maker. We need both of those things. When you vouchsafe one of those responsibilities either to somebody else or you just abdicate the responsibility wholesale, what happens is a complete perversion of the very thing that's supposed to happen. But I would argue that we, it's not that we don't understand that thing. And maybe this is getting somewhat in anticipation of the conversation next week about that internal call. But it's not that we don't understand these things as Christians. Like, and the fact of the matter is when you sit in the pew, like I was just thinking everything you were saying is making like every Lutheran and Luther himself super happy. Like if when you sit in the pew, there is a reminder that no matter who you are, no matter how long you've been a Christian, that you are still a sinner. Are you a saint? Absolutely. Are you still a sinner? Yes. And so like, you need to hear that all the time. I need to hear that every week. It doesn't go away. It doesn't get better with time. So this fact that we need to hear the truth, which is the law, and that we need to hear the gospel, which is this refreshment, the thing that helps us to understand how that law has been fulfilled in Christ is I would submit again, not something that we fundamentally be like, what is this thing? Yeah. What is this truth? And what is this, what is this person telling me and daring to tell me about the way things actually are? Even if I do not perceive them in my own right in this very moment, it's not that that's foreign to us. It's just that we refuse to submit ourselves to that in the spiritual state. Everywhere else, we're happy to do it. We're happy to go to an accountant for our taxes and to, you know, like a mechanic for our car repairs. Yeah. But we just don't want our pastors to be that way. And so in many ways, our pastors have ceased to be that way and to fill that function. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I, I feel like in a lot of ways we are um, more in sync than we've ever been because I was going to use the same <laughs> example for for really? a doctor, but I was going to take it a little bit of a different direction just to kind of extend that analogy. Do it to sort of demonstrate now where I think the evangelical church is at right now. Trust in medical professionals is at an all time low, and for so. Sure. I hear stories every day in my job, but also just in in the world of people who don't trust the advice they're getting from their doctors. And so they've now they've now gone to Google, they've gone to their friend, they go to these alternative methods or alternative uh, medicine schemas to get the answer. And, and that's very much what's going on in the church right now, right? So if you think about it this way, 
what happens in the church now in terms of evangelism and Bible teaching. And actually, Amy Bird is a is a good example of this, right? She is saying her her stated position in a lot of ways is the preaching that is happening in the churches has failed to meet a particular need. And in, in her right. mind, this need is is sort of a a need that women have for good theological I don't want to say education because it has a connotation to it that I'm not sure I want, but good theological content and edification. Totally legitimate need, totally legitimate thing. And yes, I think a lot of churches are missing the ball on that. Well, now what people are doing, particularly women in this example, they're going to their friend down the street to ask them to check out this mole and ask him if they think it's cancer. Right? Can you look at this rash I've got and tell me what I should do about it? And rather than going to the dermatologist who is trained and licensed and knows what he's talking about, or a dermatologist can be a woman, know what she's talking about, right? And get the answer from the expert who is is called and ordained and licensed to fill that role in the appropriate venue, in the appropriate way, they're going to these alternative methods. Um, instead of trying to figure out um, on your on your own whether the headache you're having is just a headache or whether you're having a brain aneurysm instead of spending all this time on WebMD, which is of course going to tell you it's a brain aneurysm, you should call the doctor. Well, instead of spending all this time trying to search through the scriptures entirely on your own, apart from any, any reading with the church, right? This is a lot of what's going on with James Whiteism. I'm going to call it James Whiteism, this sort of neo-Sicinianism where it's just me and the Bible. And although the tradition's not bad, it's not something I'm going to use. Um, that is like the person who, who tries to figure out what's wrong with their body by searching Google. Well, you might stumble upon the right answer. You might accidentally figure out that this mole on your back is not cancer. Uh, and that really it's just a mole. You might figure that out. Or you might you might go do all sorts of crazy stuff because you think it is cancer. Well, instead of doing that, you should just go to the to the person who knows what they're talking about and can prescribe the right tests, can give you the effective treatment, and can help you take care of your problem. Right. Well, that's what we do in the church a lot of times. We try to figure it out on our own, or we set up alternative sources of medicine. We set up these alternative medical clinics that are not actually licensed according to the way God has prescribed things to occur. And that's where we get things like some of these like home church movements where the idea of like an ordained teaching elder or a pastor who has training of some sort is just, it's just like anathema. Well, that's, that's what we're talking about. So I think this has been a really productive conversation because I think it sets us up right now to look at everything going forward in soteriology, which is deeply dependent on the, the way that the Holy Spirit operates through the revealed word of God it sets us up to understand that although we might say that does not happen exclusively in, in the preached word on the Lord's day, that is the vehicle. That's the place that God has agreed to meet his people is in that meeting on the Lord's day. Doesn't mean he doesn't meet his people in other ways and other times. He most certainly does. But the way that he is ordained and promised to meet his people is in the Lord's day in the preaching of the word. And he's also promised to call those who are to come to salvation through that preaching. So this sets us up nicely as we go into the next series of topics, really, as we get into the Ordo Salutis and we get into different phases and stages of salvation and what justification is and sanctification. All of that's coming down the road. But we have to understand that no matter what it is, it comes to us by the word and the spirit. And that's kind of where we end up with, with this external call is by the preached word and by the spirit, which is the secret workings of the Holy Spirit, using that word to bring about his intended effect.
that's a really excellent teaser for the next episode. That's like like exactly what you read about in podcasting magazine. That was really good. I, is there, there is a, a podcasting common theme. magazine? Do you no, have a subscription to podcasting magazine? If, if there if there was, that would have been one of the articles. Is like you know, Tony, listen to Tony Arsenal tease the next episode <laughs> in expert fashion. There is a common theme, of course, in everything that you've been talking about and that we've been conversing about generally, whether it's Amy Bird or this topic about the external call or Chad Bird, and that is, in some ways, let God be God. Let let God, we have to let him establish the rules because he is the one who establishes the rules. Like You may want to create it in your own likeness. You may want to do the very thing that you want, but to do anything apart from reality, to create a false reality is to do so and to live in a peril that is going to be absolutely destructive in the end, if not now, but certainly in the final analysis. And so this is one of those things where we have to let God be God and he gets to decide. So, you know, it's a bit like, and maybe somebody would come forward and say, you know, like the law, for example, is human beings must breathe oxygen from the air, from like the atmosphere to live. Now you may come forward and be like, but I want to live underwater. And God's going to be like, I don't care. (laughs) This is, this is the way that I've made things. This is the way that I've established it. And in some ways this is for us, the ultimate humility to not put ourselves above and beyond the creator. And I find that even in our understanding of soteriology, especially because I assume we're going to get into, when we talk about the internal call, the various ways in which different theological perspectives interpret that and how that just permeates the outworkings of their behavior and their understanding of the scriptures. And what we'll find is a really quick divergence depending on how much we're willing to just let God be God with the way that he's established the call in soteriology. So that's to come and it's going to be great. So we should say like before we close that I've been tracking with you in the scriptures that you've been reading. And of course, we're always the kind of people we've said this across 300 episodes. Like you said that in the past, like 300 episodes, one of the things that we've emphasized and we've emphasized almost everything at this point is the, the primacy the the hegemony that the scriptures should get. And any tool that helps you to put the scripture in the right place is a tool you want to use. And so this episode is sponsored by Logos Bible Software, which is a great tool to help you do exactly that thing. To take everything that you receive in teaching and in preaching that you hear or that you read, and to help you go back into the scriptures and to study the scriptures for what it actually says. So this is just like a, a kind of a blanket affirmation for the fact that Logos is a great compendium to help you do that. But we talk a lot about all the the ancillary, the accoutrements, the supplemental resources that are there. At the end of the day, Logos is a Bible software yes. tool that helps propel you back in to the scriptures itself. And that's why it's worth getting. Yeah. Yeah. And you can get it um, relatively inexpensively. You can always download their free software and then purchase resources as you go. Usually their free software will come with um, like public domain versions. You probably get the King James version uh, free of charge. Um, And then you can purchase the translation of your choice. They're usually pretty affordable. Um, But you could also purchase the fundamentals package, which if you don't have any sort of other package, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash fundamentals and you can get it on the ground floor for $50. You'll get a couple different translations, some some theology and Bible resources, uh, as well as uh, I think they are giving a promotion of five five free books from a list of your choosing. Um, And then they have other great resources. Sources. So we can't we can't encourage uh, and and support Logos enough. It really is an amazing tool, and everyone should pick it up. One thing that may or may not be an amazing tool uh, is PodcastMagazine.com. So there is a podcast <laughs> magazine if anyone's interested. Uh, is it really? I have no idea whether it's good or not. Although I'm, I recognize the names on the magazine, so it's probably are we in decent. It? 
We're not. I, I didn't look yet, but I doubt that we're in it. But we could be. We're on podchaser.com, so. Well, yeah, well, so that's my denial for next episode then. If we're not in that, yeah. I don't, I can't trust that as a resource. <laughs> I mean, we're a top 50 healthcare podcast, so we would think that we'd I at least trust. make that list, so. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward already to the next conversation, and this is the lovely thing about theology. It should propel us forward into the scriptures, into obeying and appreciating and loving Jesus Christ all the more. And give us a sense of excitement and energy because that comes with the Holy Spirit when he enables us and empowers the very things that we're talking about, which is something that we will certainly talk about next time. So until then, Tony, let's honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood.